We asked the question last week, what if a power existed that was greater than hate? Something that overcame grudges, a power that even rights a wrong. We asked that question at the end of a story about Corey Ten Boom. This week, as I was considering that question even further, my mind went to Elizabeth Elliot. 27 months after being married, Elizabeth Elliot buried her husband, Jim, as he was speared to death by warriors of a tribe that they were seeking to reach. Months later, with her baby daughter and another widow of a fellow martyr from the hands of the same tribe, Elizabeth Elliot returned to that tribe and continued to share the good news of Jesus with those very ones that have killed her husband. Eventually, by God's grace, the leader of the tribe, all of the men who participated in the murders of those five American missionaries, they confessed Christ as their Savior. And when Elizabeth Elliot was asked how in the world she could forgive those who had killed her husband, she responded, to forgive is to die. It's to give up one's right to self, which is precisely what Jesus requires of anyone who wants to be his disciple. It's to give up. It's to give up one's right to self, which is precisely what Jesus requires of anyone who wants to be his disciple. Tim Keller has said it in this way, when we are seriously wronged, we have an indelible sense that the perpetrators have incurred a debt that must be dealt with. And at that point, we have two options. One is to make the perpetrators suffer for what they have done. This may look like withholding relationship, actively initiating or passively wishing for some kind of pain in the life of the other that's similar to the pain that you've endured. Tim Keller says the problem with this, though, is that you yourself become harder and colder. You become more self-pitying and thus more self-absorbed. You see, when you try to get payment through revenge, the evil does not disappear. Instead, it spreads. And most tragically, it spreads to your own heart and your own character. And so the second option is to forgive. To forgive. To refuse to make them pay for what they did. And Keller perceptively points out that this in itself is a form of suffering because you must absorb the debt and it hurts terribly. In fact, many would say forgiveness feels like a kind of death. But it's a death that leads to a resurrection. A new peace and a true hope. Forgiveness must be granted before it can be felt. But eventually the feelings do come.
I wonder this morning how you would answer the question, do you find forgiveness difficult? Of the two options, what is it that you're most prone to choose? To make those who have wronged you suffer? To ensure that you exact revenge or even justice? Or do you forgive? Entrusting justice to the good hands of your heavenly Father. The subject of forgiveness or relational reconciliation lies at the very heart of this small letter that we've been walking through over the last few weeks. We said this at the beginning, and I've come to believe this more and more every week, but these 25 verses serve as a gospel goldmine, reminding us of how the gospel has changed everything. And this small letter is intended for you and I to have encountered God through it so that our relationships would be strengthened. It's been such a privilege to pray through our directory as I've been walking through uh, the sermon prep for this series and just praying specifically for, for you and praying for the broken relationships that, that I'm aware of or our elders are aware of. And yet I'm reminded that there's probably a host of other relationships that I'm not even aware of, but just begging God to bring relational reconciliation. And whether that's a relationship that directly affects you or whether we as a church family have opportunities to be peacemakers, to do what Paul does in this letter, to work for relational reconciliation between other brothers and sisters. Paul contends that because the gospel is true and because the gospel changes everything, then the lives of Christians ought to look different from others. I mean, this is what he hits at in another letter, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. And so this means then that we are to work for reconciliation. We are to extend forgiveness in broken relationships. And I realize that with that statement comes a host of questions about, well, if it's this kind of situation, should forgiveness be granted? And I want to say forgiveness should be granted. And there would be wisdom in beginning to come up with a plan for how do we walk through toxic situations, abusive situations. Very aware that it would be easy for me up here just to say forgiveness should be granted and you go and do the hard work and yet what that often means is that you're left navigating the difficult, complex intricacies of hard situations. And I pray that you would see your church family and your pastors as a, as a gift of grace in helping us navigate these days, but the Bible is clear. We are to be reconcilers of the relationships that are strained, and we are to work for peace in relationships that are broken. And so as we conclude our time this letter, I believe that its, it's, its imprint will be lasting upon my heart. I have been convicted over the last few weeks. I've been convicted in multiple ways convicted of being a cheerleader of sorts, an encouragement of peace in broken relationships around me. I've been encouraged to consider deeply 
relationships that I would say uh, are, are fine, but yet uh, something maybe is off. Even this week, ha- having to, to humble myself and ask for forgiveness and uh, poor execution of something. And so trying to preach to myself, what is it that love requires? And I pray that that would mark this church family. And so I want to pray that the sermon this morning would help us to that end. So pray with me. God, would you hear our prayers and attend our needs? We're needy. You're sufficient. We're broken. You restore. We're hard-hearted. And you melt the hardest of hearts. And so make us doers of your word this morning. And may we benefit and may we reap the benefits of relationships in a church that's marked by peacemakers and reconciled relationships. Or teach us how to go low and consider others. Teach us how to forgive. Remind us of what we've been forgiven. And so stir these works up among this church family and use this sermon to those goals and to those ends. And so we beg you that the sermon that is heard would be far more effective than the one that is preached. Thank you for Jesus who modeled forgiveness and who accomplished reconciliation through his life, his death, and his resurrection. That's our boast. And so we boast and we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, I invite you to turn, open your Bibles to the book of Philemon. If you don't have a Bible, you can use the, the Bibles there in your, your pews. If you grab the New American Standard translation, you can turn it to the New Testament, page 169. As you're turning there, just a reminder of Paul's purpose in this letter. He is writing a letter to a man that he led to the Lord earlier. The man's name is Philemon. Philemon is hosting a church in his home. Philemon is also the master of a runaway slave. That runaway slave has encountered Paul while in prison in Rome. That runaway slave, his name is Onesimus. And that runaway slave has encountered not only Paul, but also has come to faith through the ministry of Paul. And he has stayed and done much good for the gospel, working with Paul. But Paul sends Onesimus back with another, Tychicus, in hopes of seeing this reconciled relationship take place between Philemon and Onesimus. And For 16 verses, Paul has laid gospel groundwork in order to get to where we're at this morning, where he is going to request something of Philemon. And this is what he's laid out thus far. He's reminded Philemon that the gospel changes identity. He identifies himself as a prisoner, though he is that physically, he is also that spiritually. He's a prisoner. He talks about how relationships are now changed. It's not just one man interacting with another woman. No, these are brothers now interacting with sisters in the faith under the the spiritual headship of God the Father. And then he also introduces this word, the the word of, of church. 
kind of the called out ones, the gathering of these who come together, whose relationships are marked by who they are in Christ. And so Paul talks about how the gospel has changed, has changed identities, but the gospel also informs how they interact with one another. And Paul models prayer. We ought to be people who pray for other saints. And he talks about having a love for God and a love for others. This ought to mark the people of God. Not because we have to, no, but because of the gospel and the spirit living in us, we get to. And then also that we would be a refreshment to others. He then last week, we saw in verses 8 through 16, Paul appealed to love. He appealed to the gospel transformation that takes place in the lives of others who believe. And he appealed to God's sovereignty. And so what he's done for 16 verses is almost build a case so that if Philemon does not do what he's asking, Philemon would be going against all of the riches of the gospel, that it changes identities, that it informs how we relate to one another, that he's running away from love, that he's not considering how the gospel changes people, and that he's doubting and questioning the sovereignty of God. Well, this brings us to our passage this morning. And much like last week, uh, three points that I want to state in two ways. One, to help us sort of flow through the sermon. But secondly, I I do, I'm heavy-hearted this week uh, for those of us who know of relationships that are in need of reconciliation or whose lives are marked by several of those or even one of those. And so I don't want you to walk away merely knowing Paul's request, Paul's confidence, Paul's hope. But I want, I want you to see how Paul's request is also a call for you and I to act. And so this morning, that's how we'll walk through our sermon. And so three points. First one is this, Paul's request. Paul's request, or if I could state it another way, do the work of forgiveness. Paul's request, stated another way, do the work of forgiveness. And we see this in verses 17 through 20 of the text that Tiffany read earlier. After 16 verses, we finally have the first, uh, really the first request. It's the first command of the whole letter. And the command there, look at verse 17. If then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me, except maybe your translation says welcome or receive. And so Paul's request is that Philemon would welcome, would receive, would accept Onesimus. It's helpful to know that Onesimus and, and Tychicus have returned with this letter and everyone has gathered to hear. It's helpful for us to remember that what they would have been playing in their minds are the Roman law of the day. They knew when Onesimus showed back up what Onesimus was subject to. He was subject to severe punishment. Roman law was set up so that the one-third population of those that were bond slaves and bond servants, so they wouldn't rebel and uprise, they, they placed such strict punishments on those slaves who had run away. They were fugitives. They would have been thinking 
This is the opportunity for Philemon to walk in justice, to, to give severe punishment. I read even this week of how runaway slaves would have been branded on their foreheads, kind of fugitive. Uh, and Roman law made overwhelming provision for there to be even death as the punishment. This is the first command in the whole letter. And it's in light of that Roman law that Paul then asks an outlandish request of Philemon. Not give him justice, not give him justice, but maybe go a little bit light on him, but receive him as you would receive me. In other words, forgive him of every wrong that he's done against you. He's reminding Philemon of the partnership in the gospel that they now share together. When Onesimus ran away, he was not a Christian. He met Paul, becomes a Christian, and now he comes back and his identity is changed. And so Philemon is now face to face with whether or not he's going to allow his perception and maybe his societal relationship with Onesimus to be what drives his actions as opposed to the spiritual reality of now who they are together in Christ. They are brothers. Many commentators over and over will say this is the haymaker for the institution of slavery. Whenever, whenever there's this awareness that we not, we're not just kind of cordially okay and we're not just reconciled in some way, but no, everything that one shares, so does the other. And so that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, Paul, what, or Philemon, and what you and I share together, now we share with Onesimus. In whatever way that you would accept me, accept him. Don't give him anything less than you would give me. And this just reminds us. I mean, so many parallels in the, the letter to the church at Colossae. Colossians chapter 3, verse 11. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian and Scythian, slave and free man. But Christ is all and in all. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. It doesn't mean that, that spiritual realities just sort of do away with societal distinctions. It means that's not the framework by which we relate to one another. James chapter 2, verse 1. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Paul comes out at the first command and imperative, and it's such a loaded imperative. And he's driving home that in Christ we are one. There are no classes. There's no tier system as it relates to the family of God. There are no distinctions as it relates to the family of God. There's no special welcome for some and not others. Because in Christ, we all belong together. And in Christ, we are all deserving 
Not because of us, but because of Christ, we're deserving of a gospel-informed reception from one another. And so this is not merely receive Onesimus back into the household. This is receive Onesimus into the household of faith. I mean, is this not what Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter 6? Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. And so let's just state it. Forgiveness is an essential mark for a Christian. It is a non-negotiable. And everything about difficult relationships at this point in in the sermon will tend to go, okay, I know God's word says that, but my situation is up here. No, 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 no. Forgiveness is not optional for the Christian. God's word is up here, and it informs then every broken relationship. In the event anything would stand in the way of Philemon's ability to do this, Paul has just asked for him to forgive and erase such a deficit. If there's anything that would stand in the way of Philemon's ability to do this, guess what Paul does in verse 18? He vows to pay whatever debt Onesimus owes. Look at verse 18. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Second command, charge. Paul's saying, Philemon, I understand what I'm asking you to do, and it's costly. But I'm also letting you know that whatever debt would keep you from being able to do it, you charge that to my account. I will cover whatever he he owes. Whatever he owes, I will pay. Whatever he lacks, I will give. And if you look at verse 19, I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. Not to mention that you... Not to mention to you that you owe to me even your own self as well. Most people believe that Paul was dictating most of this letter. And at this point in the letter, he grabs the stylus and he sort of writes. This is the, the, uh, the, the note of promise. Paul puts this in his, his own handwriting here, underlying the personal guarantee that he will repay any losses that Philemon has incurred. And then as a parenthetical, Paul reminds Philemon of, of the spiritual debtedness that he has, human spe- humanly speaking, to Paul. If you were to read 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15, Paul writes and he says, For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ... Yet you would not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. That's what Paul is reminding Philemon of. Humanly speaking, you owe all of the riches that you have in Christ to the willing vessel who shared the gospel with you. He does this not because he's arrogant, sort of trying to drop the, hey, you don't have any reason. He's doing this to say, no, no, no. Philemon, understand that what you, what any debt that Onesimus owes you is insignificant than what you owe someone who has given you riches in Christ. Philemon, put this all into perspective. Right now, you think, you think that the biggest issue between you two is what you 
are owed and how you are wronged. But because of Christ, you actually share something, and that's that your, both of your biggest issues are far greater than anything that's, that's off in this relationship, and it's what you have done against God, and God in great mercy has forgiven you. William Barclay commenting on this verse says, Philemon has turned from creditor to debtor in the space of two verses. And he's loaded with a debt so large that he is under limitless obligation to Paul. And then in verse 20, Paul writes to Philemon to say, brother, refresh my heart through your forgiveness. And if we were to go back and look at verse seven, we would see that this is what Philemon is known for. He's known for refreshing the hearts of others because of how he loves the saints. What the Lord has worked out in your life, Philemon, now let that have bearing on your relationship with Onesimus. The word there in verse 20, yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the, in the Lord. The word there is the same word for Onesimus. And so in, in a play on words, what Paul says actually in the Greek is, you Philemon, be truly Onesimus to me. Be useful. Benefit me. Paul has made this beautiful appeal for the basis of this relationship. And this appeal extends to you and I as well. It's the basis of every Christian relationship. Our union with Christ, what unites us together, requires a certain level of obedience. It requires it. And so what this means is that while there are differences to be worked through politically and socially and economically and preferentially, no Christian has the right to pull back and to withdraw from broken relationships. I mean, that is a, that's a hard statement. Everything about how wronged you have been makes you think how you have, how you have so orchestrated and put together the pieces of what has happened and the relationships that are broken in your life, all of those things have been put together in such a way as to where you feel an overwhelming sense that you are right not to forgive. And the Bible actually presents the exact opposite. Every Christian has every reason to work to overcome those barriers in broken relationships. And even if the other person isn't deserving of it, even if you don't feel like it in Christ, we have the most intimate connection possible, and that changes everything about our relationships. And so, Christian, I'm just curious this morning, do you work for forgiveness? Do you do the hard work? Do you do the costly work of forgiveness? Who this morning do you need to be reconciled to? Oh, how dare we? How dare we sit through 
a word given to us by the Holy Spirit, highlighting pockets of brokenness in our lives and potentially even now beginning to justify ways in which we don't have to follow through on the other side of this service. Who do you need to be a peacemaker for? My non-Christian friends that are here or watching online this morning, I'm thankful that you're here. I'm thankful that you are watching. I've prayed specifically for you this week. And I just want to be clear, as important as restored relationships are, humanly speaking, this passage is actually highlighting a more foundational need that you have. As good as burying the hatchet in a, a strained relationship is and can be, the question for you to consider is how in the world could anyone forgive another in the face of speakless evil? How could anyone forgive another in light of crazy amounts of hurt? How could anyone forgive and, and really mean it when there has been innumerable, countless hurts done? The Christian answer is unique at this point. The Christian answer is not, well, we can forgive because when we forgive, we earn God's love. And so we keep on forgiving because we want to keep on earning. And if you're here and you think that's what Christianity is, I perform so that I can earn, I just want you to know you will die on a treadmill of weariness. And Paul will actually say, you will also die still in your sins. Because that is not the basis of relationship with God. Rather, it's not we do this so that we earn things from God. Rather, it's because we of all people understand the need for forgiveness. Not fundamentally from others, but foundationally from God himself. And this is what Paul is alluding to. Paul is alluding to in this forgiveness is what Christ had done for all of those who believe. You see, the Bible teaches that we are all made accountable to God. We were all made by God. And for God is how we ought to live. And yet we all live sort of lives that are void of God or lives that accommodate God as long as God gives us what we want. In, in essence, we were called to live accountable and under the, the reign of God, and we all live lives that said we want to be God. And this is a problem. And the Bible calls this problem sin. And the Bible just doesn't say there's a handful of sinners out in the world somewhere. The Bible says that you and I are sinners. And that poses a real problem whenever we think of who that sin is against. And so whether you think your sin is great or small, your sin is always greater than you imagine because it's against the holy God himself. And so the Bible paints this picture for us. We were created to live one way. We have a, a nature that's bent on living another way. And because God is good and just and holy and righteous, we are under his wrath for that sin. What that means in being under God's wrath is not just something that you want to think about the older you get. No, that means that you will never have purpose in this life. And it also means that you will suffer excruciatingly in hell in the next. 
and there's no hope. You can't work your way out of your predicament, and I can't be good enough. And in a, in a spectacular turn of events at this point, in this seemingly hopeless message, <laughs> because God is good, and because he's just, and because he's holy, he sends his eternal son, Jesus, to live the perfect life that we are required to live so that by faith, that life would be credited to our account. And to die the wrath-absorbing death that we deserve on the cross so that by faith, our punishment would be laid on him. And so in an equation that doesn't make any sense, through faith, I get the righteousness of Jesus. He takes the debt for my sin. And because of the resurrection, I live forever in glory with the God that I was created for. You will hear that articulated, I'm, a, I'm sure of, in better ways. But friends, you will not hear a more sweet, a more heart-melting, a more penetrating message than that today. That in Christ, he takes our judgment and we get his righteousness. He takes our condemnation, we get his acceptance. He bears our guilt, we receive forgiveness. He takes our shame, we get his love. He bears our debt. This is what he's reminding Onesimus of here, of Philemon of here. He bears our debt and we are set free. After paying our sin debt fully, God raised Jesus from the dead, vindicating every promise. And the good news this morning is that you can receive that forgiveness. You can receive the forgiveness of your sins on the basis of the work of Jesus if you will come to the end of your working and you will turn from your sin and you will throw yourself on God's mercy it is through grace alone. It's by grace alone, through faith alone. Throw yourself on the mercy of God this morning. And if you're not a Christian, turn from your sin and believe in him. And find any person in this building, reach out to us online. We would, it would be our joy to, to answer questions that you have, to walk alongside you in the days ahead. And that's what Paul is reminding Philemon of in this whole letter. He's reminding Philemon of what Jesus said to him. His debt is on me. And th that was the word of the son to the father as it related to the sins of all who would repent and believe. Their debt is on me. Martin Luther put it this way. As Christ does for us with God the father... So does Paul with Philemon for Onesimus. And in, in, in Martin Luther fashion, he says, we are all God's Onesimi. That would be Onesimus's. Okay. But this is what makes an unforgiving people forgiving. It's remembering what they have received and so, brothers and sisters, drink deeply from the forgiving waters that run through the blood of Jesus. You have been forgiven much. 
And because you have been forgiven much, you are now freed for the first time in your life. You are freed to forgive others and not to require justice for wrongs that you have endured. You're free. Peter is concerned in talking in Matthew chapter 18, as Peter is talking to Jesus, he's concerned with this idea of forgiveness. And so he asked Jesus, uh, Lord, how many, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And Jesus says, no. Jesus says, there's no limit to the amount of forgiveness that you give. Why is that? Because as Jesus continues in Matthew chapter 18, he tells the story. The story of a, the, the reason the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he didn't have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that they had, and repayment was to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him, and he began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until it should be paid back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported it to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave. I forgave you of all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have also had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly father will also do the same thing to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your own heart. Jesus says about that slave. He wasn't a misinformed slave. He wasn't a victimized slave. He wasn't a misunderstood slave. Jesus said he was a wicked slave. And there's something about hearing that story where we probably want to identify most with the second debtor. The one who's being untreated or treated unfairly in light of a wrong. But the the moral of the story is that we're more often than not the first. Struggling to forgive in light of so much forgiveness that we have received. Self-righteousness is corrosive because it leads us to think that we've not been forgiven that much and therefore we can be strict with others. I just want to be clear, that is not the flavor of Christianity. And that is not the flavor of the Christian faith that we pray marks this local church. I've heard it said, you can't hold on to both grudges and the cross. And so Christians, how, how have you been forgiven by God? And are you being generous with forgiveness to others? Your debt forever given by Jesus will always be greater than any debt that you were asked to forgive others. And he always forgives his people. 
And the result is that his forgiven people are gladly ready to forgive. And so, is his forgiveness making you forgiving? Is his grace making you gracious? If you would say, Justin, I, I struggle here. And in fact, I'm tempted to walk away under a load of condemnation and guilt because I struggle here so much. I just want you to know that your struggle doesn't disqualify you from grace and mercy. In fact, the Bible is clear that Jesus draws near to those that are struggling. He draws nears to, to sinners. And so the good news this morning is that even if you are in Christ and you struggle with forgiveness, you don't have to run from Jesus. Your struggle qualifies you and prepares you to be the person to best receive his care. And so run to him. Throw yourself on him this morning. And here's the good news is that if you do, he will catch you. It leads to our second point. Not only do we see Paul's request, we see Paul's confidence. Paul's confidence. Said another way, be confident in God's work in others. Be confident in God's work in others. As a guy who regularly and often sees areas of growth in my own life, but also in the lives of those around me, my heart has been so instructed these past few weeks. As Paul consistently writes with one eye towards the need for growth in Philemon, but also one eye towards evidences of grace. And do you spot graces as easily as you spot grows in others? I mean, it's so instructive, his example here. Paul is able to love sinners in progress because he's confident that hope doesn't rest in them. It rests in the God who is making the sinner more godly. Paul really does believe what he said in Philippians 1.6, that the one who began a good work in his people will be faithful to complete it. Paul believes that. And so look at, just look in these, in verses 21 through 24, look at the confidence uh, where the, the confidence comes from. Verse 21, he has confidence in Philemon's obedience. The confidence, as one commentator would say, isn't in Philemon himself, but it's in his, ho- it's in his ho- obedience. And not his obedience to what Paul is saying, but his obedience to what, what one commentator calls the gospel imperative that there is a general demand that accompanies the gospel. And so Paul indicates that faith in Christ is always accompanied by obedience to Christ. None of this nonsensical talk of, I accept Jesus as my Savior, but not as my Lord. No, no, no. Paul says there's a gospel imperative that says, if you receive his forgiveness, then you are receiving his lordship. And if you don't receive his lordship, then you have not received his forgiving grace. Verse 22, he shows that he has confidence in the prayers of the saints. He says, actually, Philemon, prepare a room for me because I'm coming to visit you. Even the accountability of having Paul come and visit you to ensure that you're walking in obedience. We saw last week in verse 15 that Paul reinforced his belief in the sovereign work of God. 
where he tells Philemon, perhaps he ran away, stole from you, ran away so that he would be brought back to you forever as a brother. Just Paul showing the sovereign work of God, trusting in the sovereign work of God. And it's with that robust view of God's sovereignty that he calls on Philemon to clean the guest room because he's hoping to get there soon. How is he going to get there soon? He's in prison. Well, verse 22 tells us he hopes to get there soon through the prayers of the people. Holding on to God's sovereign work, Paul understands that God unfolds his sovereign purposes as the prayers of his people go forth. It's interesting that you're there in verse 22 is plural. It's one of the first times in this whole letter that it's plural. And Paul's reminding Philemon, he's, he's putting these two realities so close together that there's no contradiction between God's sovereign purposes and the vital need for the prayers of his people. I love how David Platt says this. God wills for us to be a praying people. God wills for us to God wills to work in the world in a way that echoes the cries of his children. Another way to say it is that God brings about remarkable change in the world in response to the prayers of his people. In Exodus 32, Moses knows God is in control of all things. But he also knows that that doesn't make prayer meaningless. Instead, Moses knows that God has ordained prayer as a means by which he can and must participate in the plan of God. He knows God has purposes, and he believes that God is going to execute those purposes off of the backs of the prayers of his people. And so plead, brothers and sisters, plead for God's presence and power among his people and for his glory in the earth. Plead and plead some more. Keep on pleading until the day when scripture promises us that we shall see face to face all of his unchanging perfections. Plead. Let's keep pleading so that his plans will keep unfolding. Pray for reconciliation to abound. But he also expresses confidence in the work of God in others. He's showing, Paul showing up would have been good accountability to do the right thing, but so too would be the accountability of other brothers. And that's who he mentions in these latter verses here in verse 23 and 24. He just goes through a list of those who he sort of throws out there as a means of accountability. And he's saying, I have confidence that you will do what is right because of the accountability of others. The example and the accountability of others is vital to rightly living out the gospel. We don't have time this morning, but just even in reading through each of the list of the men that are mentioned, church history would tell us that all of the men but one endured to the end, most of them being martyred for their faith. Demas, being the one who Paul would later say, last letter he wrote, 2 Timothy, he deserted the faith. Accountability and the encouragement of others is vital. It's vital to enduring to the end. And that leads us to our last point. So we've seen Paul's request. We've seen Paul's confidence. And number three, we see Paul's hope. 
put another way, do the work of forgiveness. Be confident in the work of God and others. And now number three, rely daily on God's grace. And so again, you're struggling with a relationship this morning, with a broken relationship. Do the work of forgiveness. Don't judge whether or not you think it's going to be effective based on what you can see. Be confident of God's work in others. And daily rely on God's grace to do it. Verse 25. Why do some endure and some fall away? Why do some forgive and some grow hard and bitter? It has everything to do with God's grace. Paul began this letter, grace and peace. He ends this letter. Grace, grace of the Lord Jesus be with your spirit. Grace is God's heart heart posture of undeserved favor. But grace is also God's influence to help us where we are in need. And so God's grace is needed whenever we fail in reconciling relationships. God's grace is also needed in order to do the right thing in light of those broken relationships. And Christian, we need both. We need his kind disposition to forgive as well as his empowering support and grace. And his grace will keep us. Even if we're struggling to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, if we walk in grace and by grace, his grace will keep us. This is why we sing often about God's grace. Because it's grace that is found in Jesus. That's what we need. We believe he begins and he ends with grace because he knows that Philemon and every Christian will have to be carried by grace, will have to swim in grace, will have to be saturated by grace in order to walk in a manner that's pleasing to God. There's only one thing that would motivate Philemon to do something as audacious as forgive a fugitive slave. There's only one thing that would be so audacious for some of you to offer forgiveness to those who are not worthy. And what is that thing? It's God's grace. And so may God's grace just be what we speak of often. Maybe how we encourage one another and what we encourage one another to do. May we not be a church that says, okay, we've been around for a while. We've already covered his grace. Now what's next? No, we're going to keep coming back to grace. That is a fountain that will never run dry, and we have an appetite for it that that should never be quenched. Christians of all people, we cannot be content with small visions of his grace. The message that made us who we are is the gospel of grace. It's the word of grace that came to us. It's the grace of God and truth. And the life that we're called to live happens in grace in which we stand. We're strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. It's all undeserved, lavish favor from God. So grace that is cheap and grace that is thin and grace that is shallow, that grace will not suffice because that grace will never lead us to forgive another. But that's not the grace that we drink from because that's not the Savior that we belong to. 
And so what Christians desperately need, what the world desperately needs is the true grace of God and all of its lushness and texture to drink in it, to be fed by it, to be changed by it, to dive deep into it, to swim across it. I don't know why I use swimming analogies, but perhaps your greatest spiritual need right now is this, to let the grace of God so flood your life where, where the biggest thing that you see and that you're consumed with is not how others have wronged you, but how you have wronged God and how in the world he could have ever forgiven the likes of you. As much as our instincts may be saying about what our next step is, what decisions to make, what changes we can affect, may we stand back and look outside ourselves and see the salvation of the Lord that he has worked in us by sheer grace. You see, forgiveness, it wonderfully draws attention to the gospel. Every time we are wronged, we are being given by God an opportunity to draw attention to the gospel. And we're either gonna think about ourselves chiefly or we're gonna think of others around us and God himself so as to testify to the truth of the gospel. How distinctive in a city like Tampa and in a metro area like Tampa Bay is grace on display. How distinctive is that? Parents, you are putting seeds of gospel in the hearts of your children by helping them understand forgiveness. We would do well to model it. Spouses, we are putting seeds of the gospel on display to family members and to friends whenever we forgive we would do well to model it friends we are putting seeds of the gospel in the hearts of those around us and on display in helping them understand forgiveness whenever we model it this book has so changed me as I consider forgiveness And it's caused me to just see unforgiveness as the disease in the body that causes things to seize up. Forgiveness is how we are to work together in the church. Someone that you're having trouble forgiving this week, I would encourage you, find another member, find a pastor, find your CG leader and just say, I need help working through this relationship and seek to be reconciled. Because even in our forgiveness, we are preaching the gospel. We're not preaching the gospel by our actions. We are modeling what the gospel does through our lives. And I thank God for the many glimpses that I've been given throughout the years to see him work wonders in this church in and through reconciling broken relationships. And so to God be the glory. I pray that we would be peacemakers and we would do the hard work of reconciliation. Let's pray. God, your word has gone forth. There's a lot to consider. But more than a lot to consider, there's a God to encounter. And so in the next moment of silence, would you do more? We, we, we believe, 
even before going into this moment of silence, we believe that you can do more in 30 seconds of silence than we could do in 30 lifetimes. And so would you please move by your spirit? Show us how we ought to walk in obedience. That's what we want. We want to please the heart of our God. And so speak now, we are listening.